Hello and welcome to the Wonders of Wellbeing podcast with Amy. the teachers want to fix it that's the worst thing you could possibly do is is try not to fix it if you can take away one thing before you do a mental health first aid course which is you know a 14 hour commitment it's not huge but you know for some people it's quite a lot is try not to fix it simply if you're seeing a kid in tears if you're seeing someone really struggle if they kind of scrunch up the paper and throw it in the bin not everything needs to be a referral to well-being or kind of a flag of oh my goodness they're in distress yeah they might be All feelings are totally fine. There's no bad feeling. People are allowed to cry. They're allowed to get frustrated. There'll be behaviours that are not okay. This evening, I had the pleasure of chatting with Marie Vakakis, a highly skilled, accredited mental health social worker, family therapist, presenter, podcaster, and trainer. Marie is widely recognised for her expertise in the field of mental health and wellbeing. As a specialist in promoting positive relationships between adults and young people, Marie designs and delivers tailored programs that help educators build emotional intelligence and connect with young people. Her inspiring talks and podcasts encourage audiences to embrace mental health as an essential part of overall well-being while breaking down the stigma that often surrounds the topic. Marie is passionate about empowering teachers and school communities to facilitate open and productive conversations around mental health and well-being, ultimately creating healthier, happier and more resilient young people. With her friendly and relaxed approach, Marie empowers participants to build their knowledge and skills in this area, ultimately helping to create a healthier and happier school community. Thank you for chatting with me this evening, Marie, and welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I just said to Marie, I've been following her work for quite a while on LinkedIn and sort of saw this space of supporting teens and the therapy work that you do. And I just thought, I think Marie will be a perfect fit for this podcast that I haven't yet recorded about. So I really appreciate you jumping on. And I thought that a good place to start would be, I guess, what the inspiration was behind creating the Therapy Hub. Yeah, absolutely. So it sort of happened by happenstance. I was working, I can go quite far back. I I started off working in adult mental health and then just kept getting younger and younger. And I started working in schools and realized, oh, teens are awesome, but they come with parents and I don't know what to do with them. So I went back to, to study and I did a master's of family therapy. So through that, I do a lot of couples therapy and family work, but I still really focus on working with adolescents. And having a couple of jobs as a sort of admin, kind of the back end side of mental health services and working um, for somebody else, I thought, I'm going to combine all of that and see if I can create a sort of a place that reflects the areas I'm interested in and a job that sort of kind of that like, I don't like job portfolio sort of thing, but under one place. So through the therapy hub, I get to do the therapy with clients, family therapy. I supervise other therapists, so a lot of school counselors and wellbeing coordinators. I run mental health first aid in workplaces and I offer parenting, parenting groups. So I run Tuning into Teens, which is a program that Melbourne Uni developed and my own program, Connected Teens. So it was sort of a chance for me to bring all the things I like into one space with sort of young people, mental health and relationships being the primary focus. And yeah, the Therapy Hub sounded like a a good name that would capture kind of a hub for different things. 
Yeah, how amazing. And so many things that are that are covered through the hub, but how amazing to know that you're sort of not necessarily waking up every day, but that your cup is filling knowing that everything that you want to do, you're able to do through the practice and things that you are genuinely passionate about and that you get to do. So huge congratulations to you for doing what you love and creating something so awesome. What would you say, I thought a good a good starting point for our conversation would be around what you you would say the biggest challenges are that teens are facing post-pandemic? I think it depends who you ask, what kind of response you'll get. So when I ask parents, for them, they often don't know because they just see their kids as their kids and they kind of just, they're still the same issues, right? They won't talk to me, ask them how they are, they won't open up, I don't know what's going on anymore, they kind of feel moody or withdrawn. So parents are still noticing the same things. For young people, we're seeing them start to bounce back, but there were some who still haven't been able to engage with formal schooling in the same way. A lot of school can't or school refusal. A lot of young people still feeling a little bit rusty in some of their, I guess social skills is a word we would use, but they don't use that. Maybe more confidence or knowing how Mm to navigate particular settings, especially if they missed out on really sort of foundational milestones or activities. There's just sort of a bit of a gap in what they've been able to do. And then there's general sort of mental health, there's worries, there's financial pressure. They can see their parents struggling, so they can see what's happening around them. They're not oblivious to it. Climate anxiety, a lot of worried about sort of consent and sexual health and sort of being really advocates in their school for that, for queer and transgender rights. So it's a very new way of seeing the world. They've got a lot of access to things we didn't have. And so they're a lot of more aware, I guess, of political causes, of social causes, environmental, and, and those can create some anxiety because they see the damage that some of those things have on society. So it's, it's really mixed. Mm. Okay, interesting. And I love that you, where you started there and said, well, if you ask parents, you sort of hear this. And then if you ask the kids, you're hearing this. And no doubt you're asking <laughs> educators. They're all seeing something different. But, you know, you guys have got a wonderful way of sort of bringing that all together. In that you just mentioned school refusal. And I know that that was an issue pre-pandemic as well. But a, a big talking point on lots of social media outlets and a lot of discussions in schools post-pandemic about school refusal. What's the best way for schools to be dealing with school school refusal? I think the first is to stop seeing it as kind of a choice. Like the kids that I've worked with aren't sort of skipping school to go hang out at the shops or do, you know, whatever kids are doing. They're not like, oh, school's kind of boring and they're off doing something more fun. They are genuinely debilitated by the idea of going to school. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. So we really have to kind of stop placing the blame and seeing it as a symptom of of poor mental health or something in the environment. I mean, if we thought about it in reverse, if a kid was scared to go home, we'd be thinking, what's going on at home? Should we get child protection involved? So we should look at the system as well and it's really there's no simple solution to such a complex problem every single young person will need a different a different strategy looking at is that uh, due to connections is there undiagnosed learning difficulties have they fallen behind because you know I've had kids who were dyslexic and didn't know and as school got harder and harder they fell behind some were undiagnosed ADHDs or autistic and they found it difficult to interact with their peers so the reasons could vary and it's really taking an individual approach and understanding what's happening for them, what are their internal resources, what are the resources of the family and start to kind of start from there, I guess. Yeah. Do you think that schools are seeing it through a lens that the children are choosing not to be there or do you think schools generally have an understanding that there's a lot more to it and that each like individual situation is different? 
It depends. I mean, teachers have got just as much variety amongst them as everybody else. So you'll have some who really understand it and have done a lot of additional professional development in the space of wellbeing and some who are right on the other end saying, I sucked it up. I don't know why they can't. So it's hard to say. All I know is most of the people that get into teaching do it because they care. They really do care about the students they work with and some are under-resourced, understaffed. They're stretched quite thin. So I try to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're, they're really working hard and for some people they don't know what they don't know they're experts in in teaching and educating not in mental health yeah yeah amazing and the statistics for again pre-pandemic post-pandemic particularly is the statistics around teens who are experiencing depression and anxiety that are just scaringly high what signs and symptoms should I guess teachers and schools be looking for and then parents be looking for in order to have more of a proactive rather than reactive approach to support these young teens? Yeah, I think that both are really well placed to spot different things because you'll notice different things. So for a teenager, it's kind of natural that they start withdrawing from their parents a little bit, right? So they get home and it's like, how was your day? And they might give you a grunt and walk off. That might be totally appropriate, totally normal, nothing to worry about. But if a teacher's noticing that they're withdrawing from their friends, that they used to to sit in a spot and, and interact and then they're not doing those things they enjoy, that's a kind of a sign to kind of look at and think, that's different to what they're normally like. So teachers are really well placed because you'll work with hundreds of kids so you can see across the spectrum what's kind of age-appropriate behaviour. You're used to some of that. So, you know, if they're withdrawing from friends and family, if they're not doing things they used to enjoy, missing school, missing class, coming in late, you might notice it in the kinds of things they're writing. If you're an English teacher or if you're an art teacher, it might be how they're expressing it. So there might be just things that you just think, "Mm, not quite sure about that. It's hard to explain, but just looking out for those key bits. Also, on the other end, being really, really hypervigilant, being a perfectionist, wanting to get that extra percent and going over work, and that could also be a sign of anxiety. So there's a range of different things to look out for and putting those things together. Maybe even chatting to the young person or parents can help get a bit of a picture. Yeah, awesome. I remember like really early days. I don't think it was at university, but I think in my very first few years, I remember a professional development person came out and spoke about about mental health. But back then it wasn't, I can't even remember why they were there. There was a particular reason. I think it was aimed at our upper primary years. And I remember them saying that, you know, teachers are in such a great place as parents are to identify when there's some kind of all of a sudden change that they used to be like this and now they're doing this or if they're consistently been the same, that doesn't mean that there wasn't there hasn't been anxiety there the whole time either and to ignore that, but that when you're starting to see those change, it's a good time to start to speak up and start the communication because it's often a sign that something doesn't mean that it's a big issue but that something might be causing them some kind of concern or worry. And I think people are scared. The biggest thing I hear from people is they're scared to say the wrong thing. So they say nothing. And that's, that's well, not the worst thing you can do. You could say something really nasty, but ignoring it completely and saying nothing is just not the best option because mm. often sometimes feeling connected, feeling like someone cares, someone notices, they're all things that boost mental health. That connection with other people is one of the protective factors and one of the healing things as well. So even just sort of saying, hey, I've noticed these things. I'm worried. I'm concerned. Hey, I'm looking out for you. Little things of connection can be huge for a young person because if they're getting that from every single teacher, they might be getting it at home. It shows them that people care and I think that's really important. Yeah. Do you think it's a lack of understanding and knowledge 
that people don't ask? Do you think it's a little bit around the stigma that they don't want to say the wrong thing in case, as you said, that they're going to say the wrong thing and then that's going to backfire on them? Or do you think, yeah, and it's less about them not noticing it and just a little bit more worried about the stigma or the impact of what they say? Yeah, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sometimes they the don't combo. notice. Sometimes they think someone else will notice, so I don't want to have a have a go. But I was just thinking of some feedback I got from a school that I, I ran. I run mental health first aid in schools, and so every single participant was like, "Thank goodness, I loved it. This was great. We needed these skills." And one person was like, "This was terrible. This is the space for qualified professionals. We shouldn't be dealing with this." And really negative. And I'm like, I think those attitudes are quite common. I'm surprised she came to the course, but I think some people are like, "No, nah, that's not our place. It's nothing to do with us. We're teachers." And if you think about it like physical first aid, if someone was, you know, having their lunch and they opened a can of tuna and cut open their hand, you wouldn't think, that's for paramedics, that's not my business, I'm just going to leave them there. Like we wouldn't do that, right? So we have physical first aid and we approach people and we we provide care and then we say this is beyond, you know, first aid, we need to go to the hospital or you need to go get an x-ray. Like we have different levels of intervention. It's the same for mental health. You can't do therapy. You're not supposed to if it's someone you know. I wouldn't do it on people I know and I'm a therapist, but it's getting that person to the point of where's the next step, where they mm-hmm. need to go. You know, you cut your hand on tuna. Is it a small thing? Can we put a bandage on it? Great. Do you need to go to the hospital? Is it, you know, severe bleeding? You have different levels of intervention for physical first aid. Oh, definitely. And I think that's a little bit of a system issue around teachers feeling overwhelmed, overworked, burnt out, all of those things. It's not helping, obviously, their mindset, but you're right. I mean, they all have to have physical first aid and the mental health and well-being of the students is paramount. I mean, it's one of the seven standards in the Australian standards for teachers is student well-being. So it's huge, as it should be. So when I was exploring your website a couple of weeks ago, there was a great blog on there about study burnout. And it's, you know, not ironic, but having read, you know, so much on LinkedIn and so much in the media about burnout at the moment, especially during and and post-pandemic, and then to read it as study burnout for the kids. I thought, I've just never seen it written that way. But of course, of course, they're getting that. How can schools, parents, teachers best support kids who are feeling study burnout? It's such a tricky one because I think the whole system needs a huge overhaul and how we value achievement over effort is is quite problematic. So I think it's really trying to take the pressure off young people and saying, I can value your effort. I can value that this is important. And that's really hard. Some people want their kids to be in that top couple of percent and that's impossible. Not everyone can be there. It's a bell curve. It's impossible. But it's really trying to encourage some healthy study habits like anything, if you were an Olympic athlete or a sports that you would have rest periods, you would have a structured program. So sometimes helping them know how to study well, when to take breaks, to have good sleep hygiene, a fuel for their brain, for their bodies. It's really breaking that down into some of that general well-being stuff. I think that's a good place to start. And that takes role modeling. It's not going to be, and I've got a friend who's a teacher and I'm like, she's like, oh, the students email me at this time. And I'm like, why are you checking your emails at that time of night? Like, just say, I'm not going to check them. You know, you have to role model that too. And parents, you know, if you're saying they're always on devices, like, well, are you? It's got to be, you know, they can't be what they can't see. So if they don't see families or frail people have good healthy food, getting a good night's sleep, putting their devices down before bed, having healthy habits around exercise or movement. They can't just make it up. It's really hard. Can't be what they can't see. I love that. 
that is such a like a perfect little frame of this whole conversation, isn't it? Because especially by that age, I mean, even if they're not that age, even the little ones are looking up to people and following role models and observing their parents. But especially at that teenage, it's probably yeah more more important than people think about how important it is to to role model for them. What resources are there out there for teachers who are working with teens who might be having a difficult time? Like, is there a place where, obviously, your hub is a great starting point, but are there resources out there that you're aware of that teachers are kind of being able to go to to get some some support if they're having difficult times with teens? Yeah, so depending on the issue, but some of our kind of go-to places would be like Headspace has some really great resources, headspace.org, not the app, the meditation app. Origin has some really good things too, especially more around the sort of prickly and things around suicidality and self-harm. The Mental Health First Aid Australia website has some really good reputable things. So it's really just sort of using some of those websites as maybe mini search engines to find really evidence-based strategies can be really helpful. Mental Health First Aid, if you're in Australia, I'd highly recommend. I mean, I think everybody in the world should have this basic kind of first aid approach to mental health but that could be a good place to start as well but also it could be even just taking a step back and thinking you can't fix it all you know your educators it's just trying to find what's the the bit that I can do that can show this person I care that can help me sleep at night and I can keep going to work every day because it's really exhausting stuff and I see a lot of people burn out by feeling pressured to be everything for everybody and that's really hard and really impossible. Yeah, I think teachers naturally or are trained through their training, I don't know, to have very much a fix-it mindset that (laughs) our job is to fix it if something's broken, to fix it and to fill gaps and to, you know, help children be the best that they can. So I think it's a little bit innate, but it's amazing that there are people like yourselves out there advocating for teachers to see it through a different lens and have a different perspective and to be gentle and kind to themselves and to rely on resources and things that are out there to best support them. Marie, before we finish up, is there anything that you think is is really important that we do, you know, check over before we finish that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, I think I did a presentation recently at a school and I was like, they're like, can you cover all this stuff? I'm like, sure, in, in 30 minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I was like, what's the smallest thing that I can encourage people to do in a short time? And it's actually, I know you said teachers want to fix it. That's the worst thing you could possibly do is, is try not to fix it. If you can take away one thing before you do a mental health first aid course, which is, you know, a 14-hour commitment. It's not huge, but, you know, for some people it's quite a lot, is try not to fix it. Simply if you're seeing a kid in tears, if you're seeing someone really struggle, if they kind of scrunch up the paper and throw it in the bin, not everything needs to be a referral to well-being or kind of a flag of, oh my goodness, they're in distress. Yeah, they might be. All feelings are totally fine. There's no bad feeling. People are allowed to cry. They're allowed to get frustrated. There'll be behaviours that are not okay, but all the feelings are fine. So actually take a moment and just say, I can see you're sad. It looks like you've had a tough day. Just name it. And then that's it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to do anything else. You know, it's totally fine. And let the young person sit with the discomfort of that feeling. But it means you have to sit with that too. So try Mm. not to fix it straight away. There might not be a solution. You know, if someone's come back from a you know, from a weekend away and their dog died. You can't fix that. There's no point saying, oh, you'll, you'll get another dog. It'll be like, that's really sad. Okay, well, how about you just take it easy today? I'm going to go focus on these other students. I'll come back. You know, just don't send them out away straight away. Just let them process, let them kind of sit with that discomfort. 
they'll tell you what they need if they can. So to really try to get rid of this idea of fixing it and just think the the way to build that, it's connection. It comes down to connection. That's the simplest thing you can do before it gets into anything else. And if you're building that connection, classroom management will be easier. You'll get more buy-in when things are tough. They'll come to you. They're more likely to come to you and you'll get better rapport and better engagement, which will be good for well-being and connectivity in the classroom, but also probably for better academic results and achievement because they'll feel safe to come to you and say, I'm stuck, I'm struggling, I didn't understand this. So taking it away from trying to fix it and think about creating connection is probably the key thing in 20 minutes if I had to do a presentation. No, awesome, awesome. And I was also, as you were talking then, I was thinking you were just talking about like, you know, if they're going, whether it's home or at school and they're sort of grunting and not really talking. And I guess there may be, again, more deeper reasons for that, but also the power of connection in relationships at that time. Does that impact... I can't say that it won't, they won't grunt and they won't feel withdrawn and they won't disconnect, but the strong foundation of really strong connections and relationships that they've got, does it make that step for teens, that connection when they're feeling, when they're in that stage of grunting and, and being a little bit withdrawn, does the power of the connection that you've built before that help? It really does. And I think Brene Brown used this analogy in one of her podcast episodes about trust. She used this idea. I think her daughter was talking about putting marbles in the jar. So you have a jar and every time someone does something good or builds trust, you put a marble in it. And the Gottmans, who are a couple therapists, use this idea of like love tokens. So if you think about it, like you're just putting in deposits, you know, you're putting in marbles in a jar or coins in a piggy bank. When something tricky happens or there's a difficult hurdle, you're withdrawing but there's already kind of a buffer there. So it does have like a compound interest. The more you put in, the more it can buffer those more difficult times, the more maybe wiggle room and grace you have. If you make a mistake, because you will, you're an adult, and then showing accountability for that. Even as a teacher, like I know some people have this idea of I need to have power over, but that just doesn't fly with kids. They won't respect that. But even actually saying, hey, I'm really sorry, I was out of line with what I said yesterday. What I really meant to say was dot you know, just showing that brief bit of accountability, it's role modeling to them what to do. It's showing respect and it's building connections. So especially with teenagers, we need to really think that we're building them up to have the skills we want them to have as adults. So again, they can't be what they can't see. So if they're yelling and and being, you know, silly in class and you yell at them to be quiet, you're reinforcing that yelling is okay. You know, so we've really got to be careful of what we do and and break it down into moments of, think of it as teachable. Like, would we want them to be treating someone else this way? If we expect them to apologise or come forward if they've done something inappropriate, how do we know, how do they have the language to do that if it's not done for them? So, yeah, the grunt might be, you know, you might have a playful thing where you're like, oh, another grunt, that's funny. Or you might just be like... I'm going to actually stop asking them. I'm going to come back in half an hour or just before dinner, let them decompress. So adapting the strategy could be really helpful because you want to meet them where they're at, not try and get them to conform to you because they're young adults. They're starting to develop their own personalities and who they want to be when they're growing up. And I think you need to give them some space to do that. Oh, super powerful. And if I think about the three, you know, big takeaways being that, you know, we can't fix it and to not have that mindset of fixing it. 
understanding that they, the strong connection of relationships being super powerful and being role models for them as being, you know, really imperative, but also not being afraid to check in on their emotions and not ignore them, but to be able to check in and, and see how they're going without feeling like it's a bigger issue than it is, but to acknowledge how they're feeling so that they can feel heard and be feeling noticed. So incredible, Marie. I, I really appreciate it. If people would like to connect with you online, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so probably LinkedIn, I'm most active and Instagram. So that's Mariva Carcass is the handle. And, and I have my website. So I've got the therapy hub, which is all the kind of counseling and face-to-face stuff happening in Footscray. And then I have marivacarcass.com.au. So on that is where I have information for upcoming courses that I'm running. So my Connected Teens course, which is a parenting course that's on sale there. And then I also have workshops that I'm starting to run. So the one coming up soon is called Working Therapeutically with Teens, and that'll go through some things around adolescent development, bringing kind of parents into the room, and that'll be a live event and then available on demand. So I'm starting to build sort of a catalogue of really relevant workplace training for people who work with young people and then also kind of the parenting support as well. So that might be something that you can recommend to parents. It's it's not about teaching them how to parent. I'm not a parenting expert. It's how to relate to teenagers. So it's really about bringing in, you know, valued in how you want to be as a parent, how's that showing up in the, your activities, understanding the transition from parenting a kid in primary school to a teenager. And then some of that will also be kind of sprinkled in the the training that I run for professionals. So check out that stuff there. You can subscribe to the mailing list where I send out sort of newsletters and that. And then I have a podcast formerly called Inside Social Work, but probably by the time this airs, it's going to be rebranded to This Complex Life. So Ooh. you'll be hear different speakers talking about that kind of intersection between mental health and relationships. Awesome. Marie, thank you so much for jumping on for a chat. I really appreciate it. And you sharing your expertise and practical strategies for educators to be able to use to best support teens is is very much appreciated. I know that this is an area of struggle for many adults managing and supporting teens. And even though it might be something that you feel like you repeat on a daily basis, for lots of people, lots of these things would have been new. So it's incredible to, to have you on and extremely valuable. So thank you for everything that you have done and that you continue to do to create a better future for our lifelong learners. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And I think, you know, teachers do such an amazing job. So if we can take the pressure off that they don't have to fix it, that might actually be really helpful that just be a usual charming, friendly selves. And that can go a long way. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks.